Episode three of All We Hear is Purple. It's a very special and very dour episode on the heels of a depressing loss. We hope that in spite of our low emotional state, we can still aspire to be the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the internet. We're going to have to do it with a different cast of characters today uh, coming out from behind the glass. Tonight, we've got Rob Fox Curran joining us. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing great. Uh, Thrilled to be here and happy to finally actually be talking on the podcast. Yeah, you may have heard Rob uh, through us in his production. Anytime we didn't sound like garbage was probably Rob's responsibility. Uh, Also tonight, the editor-in-chief of all things UW Dog Pound, Max Ruman, has uh, deigned to grace us with his presence. Max, is that a fair way to describe uh, your participation in the podcast? I think that's a pretty pretty fair way. Uh, I won't say I'm happy to be here, given the circumstances of this past weekend, but I am honored to be here. That's nice. I think that's probably the first time we've had anybody honored to be in the presence of the podcast, but that means we're moving up in the world. Just a reminder that we are the official podcast of the Cody Pickett Fan Club. We mentioned at the end of last week that we hoped that we would be joined by Cody Pickett this week. We took no steps to getting him on the podcast, so that hope didn't materialize. It remained just a, a pipe dream. But we do continue to hope that he will be here sometime in the future. Well, let's get into it. It's not exciting. Nobody really wants to dwell on it. But I think the question is, why did we lose to Cal? I think there are responsibilities on both sides of the ball. Uh, Max, maybe you can walk us through some of the defensive growing pains that we saw throughout the game, particularly in the second half when we couldn't really get Cal off the field. Yeah, it was it was a very poor game, especially for the linebackers. Obviously, the run discipline was atrocious in that second half. Repeatedly, Cal was able to find cutback lanes. Joe Tryon and a couple of, of runs just looked like he had no idea what was going on. There was the one famous one where he just ran past both the quarterback and the running back when Garbers was able to run for 17 yards. And it really just looked like they were completely out of sorts. It felt like this Cal offense was completely one dimensional. Garbers was not going to beat us with his arm. And yet we didn't really seem to game plan to make him try to do that. The only time that he threw the ball was pretty much to Kyler Gordon and Gordon was playing off coverage on all of those occasions. Uh, Garbers only threw five passes that traveled more than five yards downfield. uh, And yet, Several of those were comeback routes where Gordon was playing several yards off his guy and kind of a nickel-esque coverage. Uh, It just really seemed like this team did not know how to adjust to anything that happened in the second half. It was interesting because we saw, we heard so much last year and even the year before, basically since Joe Mathis was injured in the middle of his strong season about how people wanted more of a pass rush. This was kind of the oh, you want more of a pass rush? Well, we'll show you what happens when we give you a pass rush. We didn't hold the edge at all, and they were easily running around, just making plays like crazy. It was I was impressed by Christopher Brown. I thought he was a little Lendell White-esque in his big but slippery ability to hit the hole and not 
fall down to arm tackles. And at least you've said that the, the Cal offense was one dimensional, which as far as I can remember is, is one more dimension than they had last year. So they're, they're at least moving in the right direction. I, I, I want to give them a little bit of credit, but we certainly didn't do enough to take them away. And Rob, I, I, I know the, the linebacking core, in addition to those uh, outside linebackers, the inside linebackers were frequently nowhere to be found. What do you think of kind of a second consecutive poor performance by uh, Wellington? Yeah, you know, um, anytime you're plugging and playing in a new player, there will be some growing pains, especially early in the season. So some of this is to be expected, um, whether it's uh, Wellington or Tryon, who we talked about. Um, of course, uh, Manu is uh, our other new middle linebacker, fifth-year senior, so he, he knows the system, but um, getting some early game reps here. Uh, Manu I've actually been kind of pleasantly surprised with, and, um, you know, he, he keeps appearing uh, in plays and in, in tackles uh, I wouldn't expect him to see, and his, his range has been better than I was expecting. But Wellington, um, again, the, the missed tackles, um, some, some fairly basic stuff you would expect. Uh, I, I think he's a fourth-year player, a true senior. Um, I, could be, I could be off on that. Um, but, you know, just some, some very basic uh, defensive breakdowns that you would expect somebody of his experience and time in the system to kind of have on lock. Um, but at the same time, mental mistakes will occur, and just more reps almost always helps. So... You don't, it's brutal to play a second game against, you know, a, a quality opponent. Not that it's a, uh, an excuse. Or, of course, schools like Auburn uh, played Oregon right out of the gate and stuff. But um, with the number of new faces we have in our defense, it certainly would have been nice to have uh, Hawaii week two and not Cal. That's fair. There are definitely, they're going to be, we're talk, talking a little later about some of the other tests in the Pac-12 this week, not so much for Washington, but for several of the other teams. And maybe that one more game would have made the difference. Maybe not. It's impossible to say. We gave up 20 points. That's not a ridiculous number. I think we would all have said going into the week that if we were giving up 20 points, we would expect to win. It didn't go that way, but it wasn't just the defensive problem. Uh, the offense didn't really do a lot either. Is there one thing, uh, Max, that you would pinpoint as the biggest problem offensively, or is it a bunch of things interacting with each other? Certainly some things went well, but what would you say were the, the things that didn't work out offensively? The obvious thing was the drops. It's just been, I don't think we had a single game last year where we saw anything like we did, uh, where I, I ended up charting a lot five drops. I know some people would argue a couple more of those might be on the receivers. Uh, regardless, it was drops where they were completely uncontested and uh, it would have added an extra 30 yards, even if you assume there were no yards after the catch and would have been at least another two first downs. Um, that was huge. I also did not think the offensive line played very well at all. Cal was able to consistently, when they were blitzing, what they were doing is they were bringing uh, either multiple linebackers or defensive backs that were coming from the same side to overload and then dropping that opposite side defensive end into coverage so that we didn't have enough numbers on one side. And the offensive line just did not appear like they knew how to react in that situation, which seems weird because that's something that the Husky defense does all of the time. And there's one play in particular when uh, Easton took his one deep shot that went out of bounds to Bocelli where our entire offensive line was uh, trying to block three Cal defenders 
Meanwhile, uh, Savan Ahmed and Cade Otten were also trying to block three defenders, and both our right guard and our right tackle had their backs turned to the three defenders to their right, which seems like an odd way to go about pass blocking. Uh, Eason really struggled when he was under pressure. Uh, granted, we struggled a lot when we weren't under pressure as well, but averaged 5.4 yards per play with no pressure and negative 0.1 when we did have pressure. And that's a success rate of 31% with no pressure and just 12% when we did face pressure. Uh, Eason really, it appears, is going to be somebody because of his lack of mobility that's going to need a clean pocket for the most part. And granted, he made a couple plays sort of when he was able to leave the pocket. But for the most part, uh, if Cal's able to get him off his spot or any defense is able to get him off his spot, I don't know that this offense is going to be able to do much. And I just kind of expected better in pass blocking for as a veteran a line as we have. Yeah, I think those are all good points. Actually, on Twitter, Ryan Leaf, of all people, made a comment about that same Eason throw to Bocelli that you mentioned, where he pointed out that Eason should have been able to read the coverage, the soft zone from the safety on the play side, and known that regardless of the pressure, he would have had the drag route coming over the middle. I believe it was Fuller left all alone and could have made the throw easier on himself with before the pressure got there. Maybe that's something he could learn over time. Maybe it is an offensive line issue primarily, and we shouldn't even be debating about that part of it. I, it seemed like not just on the long plays, but we were able to move the ball between the 20s reasonably well. Savan Ahmed played another strong game. Richard Newton looked good at times. But once we got in the red zone, we weren't finishing drives. This is year two of seeing that same issue. Rob, what do you think of... As we get down into the red zone, we're just not finishing drives. Is it play calling? Is it the the blocking? Is it the run game? What's causing us to settle for three instead of getting the touchdown? Um, You know, most often it's some combination of the three. Um, I do want to say that uh, before we get too into it, um, Savan Ahmed did have a career day, uh, 21 carries and 119 yards. Um, so that was that was great to see. Definitely. Um, and uh, also Richard Newton had uh, nine carries, which I think equaled uh, the number of carries he had against Eastern. Um, so uh, I think it's pretty clear that Newton is the number two at this point, which I think is interesting, um, over, overtaking uh, McGrew. Um but uh, who who also got a few touches, but uh, just a third of what Newton got. But back to the red zone issues, you know, uh, Bush Hamden talked a lot about uh, being uh, in an attack mode a lot more this season. Um, and uh, certainly against Eastern, we saw that. Um, and I did a few shots uh, against Cal. Um, but in the red zone, I felt like once again, they ended up playing actually fairly conservatively. Um, and unfortunately, conservative in the red zone tends to mean running it up the middle and in this game we saw a lot of running backs just getting stuffed up the middle um and you can focus that specifically on the push that the offensive line is getting so you know cal has a few big bodies up front um actually they they have pretty decent size up front the the skill level that comes with that is up for debate but they certainly have bodies um but they were good enough and substantial enough to kind of stonewall our offensive line when it mattered most. Um, so that was a little disappointing to see the the lack of push in the run game, um, specifically in the red zone, because it didn't seem to be much of an issue outside of the red zone. I would agree with that. Are there any other thoughts or are we ready to put this Cal game to bed once and for all and move on, hopefully never having to think or talk about it again? Let's end the nightmare.
All right. Well, now that we're through with that, I think we could spend the rest of the podcast talking about Antonio Brown. Uh, just kidding. I think we've all probably talked and listened to enough think pieces on Antonio Brown. Uh, let's actually talk a little bit about the other theme that wasn't directly game related, but the lightning storm was an interesting happening on Saturday night. Uh, I, I attended the game or at least the first six minutes of the game, as it turned out, five minutes and 18 seconds of the game. We, I arrived for the tailgate around 4.30. I was there until about 10 o'clock and I saw five minutes of football. But it was pretty wild standing in the 300 level concourse, looking out over uh, first over Lake Union as the storm moved to the east, looking over Lake Washington and watching the light uh, just lighting up the whole lake. It was it was a show in itself. It was a little frustrating that we didn't get to watch any football. I wasn't planning on staying there till two or three in the morning. Uh, it didn't really work out that way. What were your guys' experiences? I, I figured they were eventually going to play the game that night, but I didn't really want to ruin the the next four days of my life by staying there until three in the morning. Did either of you stay for the game, or did you did you end up watching on TV? Yeah, I was in the same boat as you were, uh, Andrew. I was also at the game, and when they first put up on the board that there was a lightning, I, I had tweeted out on our account that I could see the lightning off in the distance before that, so I kind of knew it was happening. Uh, but they put that up, and I went to evacuate, and literally no one else around me uh, stood up in the slightest, so I kind of sat back down. And then once we actually got the first clap of thunder, then everyone around me kind of realized, oh, wait, hey, we should move off these metal bleachers. Uh, but I, like you, I did not think, <laughs> well, I guess not like you, I actually was a lot less optimistic about the game eventually restarting, and I think I gave it until about 10.05, 10.10, and uh, when the second time that the lights went off in the stadium, once I saw that, I really didn't have a lot of faith. And I ended up heading out and watching the rest of the game on TV. Uh, but it was definitely not the ideal circumstance that you want. But heck of a show with that lightning display. What was the uh, what was the mood like um, in, in, in the crowd after after you were um, back on the concourse? Um, what, like was morale surprisingly high for a period of time or were people pretty somber there? Uh, right away i'd say where i was standing the the predominant mood was confusion nobody knew what was going on there wasn't a lot of communication sure uh, we all reasonable. a lot of people asking if it, if it was possible to get into the off-leash deck or if they would allow re-entry if they went back to their tailgates to drink uh just because they were annoyed and frustrated and we were trying to figure out what the rules are and then debating about meteorology and is there any science behind the 30 minute rule after the last sighting of lightning? Is that any safer than 20 minutes or 40 minutes? Does anybody know any of the answers to these questions? Uh, I did have a friend who imbibed a little more heavily at the tailgate who stayed in the stands and said that pretty much everybody that was left in the bleachers was just extremely drunk and it turned into a very weird and very fun party for the people who just stood out there. Uh, we're still under the cover of the overhang on the, the south side of the stadium. I'm sorry, on the north side of the stadium. So anybody who was out there, they were dry. They were at risk of sure death, uh, but they were having a great time from what I heard. Uh, Max, what was it like for you ha hanging out in the concourse? Yeah, I, I went up onto one of the ramps and to try to get a better view just over everything for the lightning. So I wasn't in the thick, and I didn't really have any interest in standing in a very tight sardine can in the concourse. So I tried to stay away from that for the most part. So I can't say I was really paying a lot of attention to everybody who was packed in there. But for the most part, yeah, I think I think just confusion sums it up. I had a lot of people who kind of rotated and took a turn looking over the ramp um, who were just 
coming up and either weren't able to get reception or they did not have Twitter. So they were quite blessed uh, asking what was going on. And I was trying to give updates when I could, but nobody really knew what was happening. The only real upside of it was they eventually got the USC Stanford game on the concourse TVs. So although they had the display formatted as they did on the big screen for the stadium, so there were it was about 80% ads and borders and then a view of, about the size of a phone screen in the middle of these big LCD, LED, LCD TVs showing uh, the USC Stanford game. But that was at least some kind of diversion. It seemed like a bad sign when the vendors started closing. But we the first thing that the group I was there with checked was the remaining schedules for both teams. And since there wasn't a bye week that lined up, and the week after the rivalry games is the Pac-12 title game, it seemed pretty clear that they were going to have to find some way to get the game in. I was trying to figure out logistically if they could play it on Sunday. I don't know how they would have got the security staff back and the concession staff back. I think it would have been a nightmare to try to get everybody operating the stadium again. I think somebody told me they had between fifteen and 20,000 people there when they finally did start playing again. And it didn't look that bad on TV, honestly. It looked relatively full between the end zones on the sidelines, at least in the lower deck. And that's probably about the best they could hope for. I don't know if that had any effect on the game, if it had any effect on the players. I would guess it didn't affect one team more than the other, but it was just very strange and memorable. Yeah, certainly a unique situation. It definitely was. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, uh, I, I had a kind of unique experience, or uh, maybe not so unique. Um, maybe maybe more of our listeners are not West Coast-based like uh, I am or Chris is. That's some of, I think you guys know Chris and I are both Minneapolis-based, so we're uh, a couple of hours ahead. So shout out to everybody else who was awake and watching, uh, not in the Pacific time zone. But um, I was at the, the uh, Twin Cities, specifically Minneapolis, uh, UW Alumni Association watch party. And we had, a, we had a fun little crew there and everybody was super pumped up and it was our first meeting of the year. And, um, you know, we had decorations out, the flag. Um, everybody was drinking, having a good time. And then, you know, as everybody was getting a little buzzed and talking, somebody looked up at the TV and was like, why are they, why are they going, why are they leaving? And, uh, none of us, of course, had any idea what was going on. Everybody had been imbibing and, uh, a crew of about four of us stuck it out until the bar told us that it was time to shut, shut down soon, uh, before the game even came back on. But, um, uh, just, just shout out, shout out to my little Minneapolis crew there for for hanging with me and trying to trying to make it through the end of the game. Yeah, it was a memorable one. I, I think back, and some of the most memorable games I've been to at Husky Stadium have been the ones with the most bizarre weather. There was an insane yep. wind game against Arizona State. I think three years ago was that twenty uh, twenty fifteen because that was a Siler Miles. Uh, couple years, twenty fifteen. That's right. Yep, and the couple i think it may have actually been the year before that arizona there was a monsoon yep. game against oh, yeah, arizona epic. uh i was not undercover for that game and my rain gear ripped up so that one was very memorable i even remember i believe it was 2009 uh non-conference game against idaho where it was about 95 degrees and that wasn't i you know texas and lsu dealt with that but us seattleites don't deal with 95 degree weather very well and it was 
uh, a it felt like we were playing in an oven and it was ridiculous and that was every bit as memorable as the, the rain and the lightning and the wind and the monsoon games uh so yeah i i'm sure we'll all remember this for years to come and we'll be talking about the game that didn't end until two in the morning and hanging out in the concourse like we're in a fema tent after a hurricane uh but it was it was a memorable experience and too bad we can't remember it for something more pleasant than the way that the game ended but we all survived and i guess that's what's good we will take a quick ad break at this point we'll come back on the other side to talk about the hawaii matchup and then a little bit more on the pac-12 and a little bit on the rest of the college football in general so stick with us we'll be right back welcome back Hope you enjoyed those advertisements. Hope they're not still telling you that college football season is right around the corner. If they are, just pretend they're talking about the conference season. We're going to preview the Hawaii matchup. So Hawaii is 2-0 against the Pac-12. That's two more wins than Washington has. We are 0-1. They'd be ahead of us in the conference standings right now. Max, I know you were taking a look at the Hawaii offense. Is it the same old system, the efficient passing, lack of running? Can you tell us what to expect this Saturday? Yeah, I really think the only analysis you need is that they have two Pac-12 wins and we have zero. I, I really don't think anything else needs it. We're kind of doomed. But I guess if you really want I think to get more in-depth in that, blog already covered that. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you really did want to get more in-depth, although I don't really know why you do, yeah, Hawaii really is all about the passing game. Through those first two games against Arizona and Oregon State, they averaged 482 yards passing. Uh, granted, those are the two probably worst defenses in the conference. I think that will play out across the year, and both of them are at home, where obviously they will be a slightly better pass uh, defense they'll be playing in Washington, and they will be playing on the road. Uh, but what they really want to do, they have two really dynamic wide receivers who are both five foot nine. It'll be an interesting, interesting display that there might not really be a six foot tall wide receiver that's featured in this game, considering that UW has as Aaron Fuller, Andre Bocelli, and Chico McClatcher, and they've got two five foot nine guys that are their leading receivers. Uh, but so far through two games, those two have combined for 500 yards receiving and nine touchdowns. Uh, so a little bit more production than UW's gotten out of their wide receivers so far. Uh, they do not run the ball. They've only run the ball at, in, as far as handing off to their running backs 20% of the plays so far this year. Uh, they're led by Cole McDonald, who had a farm EIEIO. Uh, Cole, first of all, looks like the perfect Hawaii quarterback. He has dreads and just looks like he's a beach bum, which is perfect. He also is a very good scrambler, which after what we've seen from Chase Garbers this past week makes me a little bit nervous, considering our defense did not do very well in that regard. Uh, I can really see us trying to play the kind of defense that we did against Washington State, or at least that we have several times against Washington State, where we rush three to four, drop everyone back in zone coverage and try to make sure that there's no open passing lanes. I think where this might be a little bit different is Hawaii is a little bit more willing to take deep shots down the field than the Washington State offense traditionally is. Uh, but I think it's going to be a good challenge. It's definitely going to be very different from Cal. So the team really needs to have a short memory moving forward uh, going into this game with Hawaii. Um, but it'll be a good test. Uh, I, I think. Having Elijah Molden, and I see a lot of probably Miles Bryant coming down to be uh, playing one of those other uh, short receivers from the safety position, uh, potentially in our dime looks might be something that we go to. Um, I think we have the personnel among our defensive backs to do well in this game, but it's definitely going to be a challenge on that side of the ball. There are a couple fun facts about Hawaii coach Nick Rolovich. 
He was a two-time uh, junior college All-American at City College of San Francisco, where he won a junior college national championship in 1999. He transferred to Hawaii, and then he went on to play. He, he was the backup at Hawaii uh, to Timmy Chang, who was the all-time leading passer in NCAA football when he graduated. He went on to a professional career in uh, the World Football League, the brilliant successor to NFL Europe. Uh, where he played for the Rhine Fire and lost World Bowl eleven to the Frankfurt Galaxy. So if you, anybody wants to develop any great taunts uh, about the Frankfurt Galaxy, it's probably haunting his dreams to this day. Uh, that 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 probably is enough on Hawaii. It's not the most exciting matchup we'll play, especially because their offense looks a lot like the WSU offense, like you mentioned. So we're, it's not quite as novel as it might otherwise be. There are some interesting notes outside uh, of Seattle through the Pac-12 and the rest of the country. I caught my eye. I mentioned earlier the USC game was being played in the concourses. Uh, they Behind Keaton Slovis, they blew out Stanford. I, I think we talked before about them becoming more of a grounded pound team. Rob, what do you think of, of this turnaround uh, with Slovis in place of JT Daniels? Is this USC team a higher potential team than we previously thought they were? Could they win the South? Could they win the conference? I mean, I think it's been pointed out before, but um, they are still, you know, if, if you're going off of recruiting ratings alone, the most talented team in the in the league, uh, man for man. So, you know, it's not like they're devoid of talent. They're just devoid of maybe competent coaching is a, is a bit of a stretch or a little unfair, but uh, certainly from by all accounts, uh, they could benefit from better coaching. Um, but that doesn't mean there's not a ton of talent on the team. And of course, like their wide receiving core led by Amon Ross St. Brown um, is absolutely elite. Um, so they, they have the, they have the dudes uh, there. And, you know, if, if they use them correctly, um, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to deliver it at an extremely high level. Crosstown, things are not looking as good in Chipland. UCLA lost at home to San Diego State. Uh, the team that beat them in week one, Cincinnati, got absolutely rocked by Ohio State. Now they've got the Bruins. They have Ohio, have Oklahoma coming to town. How bad can this get, Max? Is this a 50-point loss? Is, is there any chance UCLA can hang in this game? No. No, there's not. I, I, re- okay, next. I really <laughs> don't understand. If I lived in Vegas right now, I would have put – everything i own on oklahoma in this game i think it opened at 23 and it's 26 it, it opened at 17 it opened, okay. and it moves to 23 at the early okay. today it's it's i've never seen a line move this much this quickly it's been wild and i don't and under, i think it's going to keep moving i don't understand how it's not at 30 just i don't i don't understand how ucla is supposed to do anything against that oklahoma offense and Oklahoma's defense is not good, but I don't see how DTR is going to do anything against them. Granted, I have not checked to see if some of their guys who have been either suspended or injured through the first couple games are going to be back this week. And maybe that makes a little bit of a difference, but this team just looks completely hapless right now. That is true. They do look hapless. It's been a rough start. Uh, Unclear whether Chip Kelly's going to get turned around or not. The big headline of the, the weekend was LSU winning at Texas, who may have been a little overrated to start the year, but a top 10 team nonetheless. Joe Burrow looked great for LSU. Rob, do you think this is a contender? We talked about USC having the talent 
but maybe not the coaching and the execution. Is LSU also a candidate to take that next step and maybe compete with the Alabamas and the Georgias in the SEC? Yeah, I mean, again, we, we were just talking about a loaded roster with USC. LSU's right there. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned Joe Burrow had a performance, 31 for 39, 471 yards and four touchdowns. Uh, he did throw a pick, but um, with that amount of yardage and four touchdowns, I think that can be forgiven. Um, especially going on the road to Texas. Uh, I mean, talk about a performance. You know, if they can keep this up, uh, I, I don't see any reason why you would pump the brakes on them. Uh, that I would say the hype seems to be real. So week three is upon us. Looking back at week two, it's, it's going to get more exciting as we go forward in the conference. Friday night, Washington State goes to Houston, at least uh, the city, if not Houston's on-campus stadium. They're playing at the Texan Stadium. Stanford travels to UCF and their infinite winning streak. USC is going to BYU, which is a tough place to play. Uh, and BYU is also coming off a win against Tennessee, just like everybody else. Arizona State plays at Michigan State. I mentioned Oklahoma coming to UCLA. Even Arizona gets to host a semi-interesting game against Texas Tech. Is this the week when we're going to come on Sunday and all the talking heads are going to be talking about the Pac-12 is dead, the Pac-12 is the weakest Power 5 conference, or do some of these games, uh, Max, look to you like potential uh, chances for the Pac-12 to assert itself as a competitive league once again? Well, last time I checked, this Saturday is a day that ends in Y. Therefore, I have a feeling the talking heads probably are going to be talking about the fact that the Pac-12 is dead. Uh, but this this week really does look like there's a chance that, you know, of those kind of five premium games, I, I, very easily the conference could go one and four. I think three and two is probably the best we can hope for. And if we do go three and two uh, with those losses being, you know, Oklahoma at UCLA and then either Arizona losing or Stanford losing. But if Wazoo can beat Houston, USC can beat BYU. Um, I, I think there's a chance that at least we kind of hold serve. I don't know that there's a chance to do much better than that. That sounds about right. It, and all those other games are unranked Pac-12 teams against top, I don't know if they're all top 10, but top 15 uh, teams from other conferences. So, and and we're, the Pac-12 teams are significant underdogs in all of them. So it's, it wouldn't, I don't think it would be fair to expect Pac-12 wins there. But if they do, if we can pull some of them off, maybe it's a chance to get a little bit of momentum in the conference's favor. I, I was just going to say, uh, I, I don't understand the, the scheduling decision by Stanford to play a game at UCF. That just seems like such a lose-lose scenario to play a, a, a quality, non-Power 5 team, Group of 5 team at their stadium. There's a pretty decent chance that they could go out there and lose. Um, and even if they win... Uh, I, I suppose it counts as a good win, but again, against a non-Power 5 opponent, that, that one is a little baffling to me. So, I don't know. Hopefully Stanford pulls that one out, but giving UCS winning streak seems like a long shot. Does anybody know off the top, off the top of your heads if that's a home-and-home home series, or is this just a... I would assume it is. But I was I, just I, trying I to look that up. Sure. It looks like not in 2020. This is good podcasting. Absolutely. Hey, it happens. In any case... I, UCF's on what a a thirty ish game winning streak right now. If I, I would think that Stanford would get some credit if they go in there and and knock them off. Uh, if they don't, no harm, no foul. They are underdogs in the game. Sounds like KJ Costello is going to be back. As far as I could tell, this is not a home and home, which is a very, as you said, very strange scheduling. So uh, we'll leave it at that. And 
uh, try to figure out what's going on with Stanford. But before we uh, sign off for the week, we started something last week where we give a non-football recommendation for the most entertaining non-football thing that uh, we found over the last week. I went first last time, and I think I stole Lucas's entry, so I'm going to put myself at the bottom of the list this time. Rob, do you want to jump in and tell us something that wasn't football that you found entertaining in the last week? Yeah, actually, um, I just picked up a new show on HBO. Um, it's starring... Uh, is it starring Danny McBride and John Goodman? It is not starring Danny McBride and John Goodman, but that is also a very funny show, and I uh, would recommend it. Um, yeah, so it's a show on HBO starring James Franco. It's called The Deuce. Um, I'm only about three episodes in, and uh, I know they just released the second season. Um, so I'm just getting started on it, but uh, it takes place in 1971 in uh, New York, and it's it's a, a cast of um, it, it's an awesome, fairly star-studded cast. Uh, James Plank Franco plays two different characters on the show. Um, uh, for those who are interested, Method Man is on the show. Um, he plays a pimp. Um, pretty cool, and uh, yeah, it it has to do with uh, a lot of vice. Uh, the early porn industry. Um, I wouldn't describe it as a family-friendly show, but it's highly entertaining and um, really interesting. Uh, check it out. The Deuce on HBO. I, I will echo that. I'm a huge fan of that show. I, it's it's by David Simon, who was uh, the, the executive producer and lead writer of The Wire, which is, uh, I, I would say, my favorite TV show, but it's it's so much ahead, of, so far ahead of every other TV show that it's not fair to compare. And he also made Treme, which was really good. And this is his newest show. It's got Maggie Gyllenhaal in it. You mentioned Method Man. It's the second season takes it to another level. It's outstanding. Highly recommend. I'm pumped. Uh, if you have HBO, uh, Max, Max, anything on your end, or do you want to also talk about the Deuce or some other David Simon project? No, I. If we want to go for another six hours tonight, we can just talk about the Wire. But if we're not going to, okay. I mean, I think I'm down. Don't get me wrong. It. Uh, all right, let's do it. Uh, I think for me. I I gave up on the Mariner season so long ago. The Schadenfreude of watching this team lose twenty-one to one to Houston, and then the chance that they could just go winless pretty much for the month of September—that's kind of my watch. If you if you want to hate watch some baseball for a team that I want to love but they just won't let me, uh, that's something that you can do on on your nights for the rest of the rest of the month. They are calling up Justin Dunn, so that might be a thing to watch to watch less hatefully i've I've always described my my mariners fandom as an abusive relationship along those lines i i love them so much and all they do is hurt me uh it sounds like you have a similar situation That's there true. max absolutely I, I don't know any seattle fan that doesn't doesn't feel that way about the team i grew up a twins fan so this year has been uh some retribution after some some lean years it hasn't been as bad as the mariners who i've also adopted as a secondary team since i've been in seattle for over a decade, but it's uh, the the Twins are my first team, and this year has been very good, and they've brought me a lot of entertainment. But I was going to say for this week, uh, this weekend, if anybody's looking for something non-football related to do, uh, there's a live How Did This Get Made podcast. Uh, they're recording it, I believe, at the Paramount. It's at one of the downtown theaters. I might be wrong about might be wrong about the exact location. Uh, that's it's Paul Shear from the League and his wife, uh, actress comedian June Diane Raphael, and. Uh, Jason Manzukis, who's one of the funniest uh, improvisers and comedians in in the world. He plays Rafi on The League, and he's also in a bunch of other things. It's really funny. If you haven't listened to the podcast, How Did This Get Made? It, the premise is they watch an incredibly bad movie and then spend an hour talking about how bad it is. It's usually very funny, and I, I'm excited to see it live. 
so I think that's it. Any final closing thoughts from anybody? Bring back Gaby Lucas. <laughs> yeah, Gaby should be back next week. Uh, it'll be fun to hear her stories, and hopefully we wish her luck in whatever uh, stand-up competition she's doing now, and maybe she can tell us uh, the play-by-play of that next week. Uh, I think that does it for this week. Join us next week when, once again, we hope to be joined by Cody Pickett himself. Maybe next week we'll do some work to actually get him uh, on the podcast. We probably won't, but you'll have to tune in next week to sign off. In the meantime, go dogs. Beat the Rainbow Warriors. Let's go. Let's go.